Today's reading is Luke 14, 25 through 34. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? The word of the Lord. You know, Brad was sharing about the, the, the marathon season. Um, I couldn't help but remember, and it was just over a month ago, uh, you know, I went into that race having trained, um, but when I actually got on the course, I realized that I had absolutely no plan for what I would do once I finished. And so, like, I had no ride home. I was actually thinking about riding one of those, like, scooters home from St. Paul to Minneapolis, which would have been the worst idea in the world. Uh, I can't imagine how horrific that would have been if I had tried to do it. Uh, and I had, no, I had no, like, people I was going to meet. Brad talks about the, the World Vision tent. I didn't even know that was there. I didn't read the email. And so I was just wandering aimlessly. Uh, I had the free beer ticket in my hand, and that's the last thing in the world I wanted at that time. And so, but then, like, a beacon shining was the Team World Vision tent. I crawled into the tent and, uh, and, and, and then just got to sit down and rest. And as we've been training and talking, and, and as Brad talked about this morning, I think that the, that marathon experience is such a pregnant metaphor for the season of Elevate and the capital campaign, is that it requires effort, strenuous effort, you know, sacrifice, digging deep. You're sacrificing hours of your life to go running. And the people who love you and are supporting you are sacrificing, yes, money to support you, but they're also like sacrificing so you can now go out and train for this. And you don't know if you're going to be able to do it till you actually get out there and do it. And, and, and then um, when you finish, you kind of look back with a sense of pride, but also the sense of well, if I do this again, I'm going to do this different that next time, you know, and for me, I'm not going to weave so much through people, and I'm going to save a little bit more for the second half, and so I think even for us, we're going out, we are working the training program, we are going to give it our absolute best effort, and I know that we're going to look back and say, hey, we could have done X, Y, or Z differently, but all, all that ultimately, ultimately matters is that we're running the race, we're giving it our best effort, and we're not doing it for ourselves. We're doing it for something bigger and more important, and that is to elevate the name of Jesus here. And we know that, that, that this is just a means 
to an end. The campaign is not the end. The number that we're shooting for, the $750,000, that's not an end. It's just a means to an end. An end of elevating the name of Jesus, an end of making this 20th century building suitable and hospitable for 21st century ministry. Because this sanctuary was constructed in 1924. The Roaring Twenties, but the, the, the Aldrich Avenue Presbyterian Church was founded in 1912, and there was a building there. But you can know that about a, exactly 100 years ago, there was faithful women and men having conversations like we're having now. How do we dig deep? How do we sacrifice to do something for the glory of God and the good of the city? And not every generation gets the opportunity to do that, but we do. And that's exciting. Now, don't worry if, if you're new to the church or this is your first time here. What I'm preaching about here as it pertains to the campaign, it, it, it is universal because we're talking about elevating our practices of discipleship. We're not just talking about what we're giving to. We're talking about what we're giving from. You know, how can we walk faithfully with Jesus in order to lift his name, his reputation, his ministry higher? And so for this sermon series, we're, we're really homing in on five areas of discipleship that we think we can elevate. Um, and, and that's our worship, our prayer. Today is generosity, justice, and mission. Because we believe that if we can be elevated in these areas, then we will be better elevators for Jesus. And we'll have an elevator. So this all works together. So again, I, I've said, I can't say it enough, that we're, we're talking about what we're giving from, not what we're giving to, but today with generosity, honestly, that's probably where we see the closest intersection of, of the giving from and the giving to principle, because generosity is always directed towards something or someone. And, and it always comes forth from somewhere. And so generosity is really where giving from and giving to embrace, and we see it most clearly. And so we're going to look at this passage today from Luke and see what Jesus has to teach us here about elevating our generosity. Now, when you look at this passage, say you're to open up your, uh, you know, study Bible that you have at home, uh, and if you've got the English Standard Version, if you've got the New International Version, if you've got the New Revised Standard Version, um, they all label this passage the same. They all call it the cost of discipleship. And so the editors of, of these various translations of the Bible, they were all giving a nod, a hat tip to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, or that's its, the name of its English uh, translation. And, and Bonhoeffer is famous German Lutheran theologian from the mid-20th century, and he was famous in his own day, actually. He was very renowned around the world for his theological work. But, but the reason that we still know him and talk about him today is because he died as a martyr at the age of 39 at the hands of the Nazis. He had involved himself in efforts to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And when his role in the plot was discovered, he was arrested, he was imprisoned. And, and tragically, just weeks before the end of hostilities, before um, the Allies and, and the Axis powers stopped shooting at each other in Europe, Bonhoeffer was summarily executed. He was hung at the gallows for being a traitor and a spy. Now, Bonhoeffer, he had an out. He didn't have to experience this. He didn't have to, to suffer the fate that he suffered. You know, he was a, a, a bright light. He was a promising academic. He was known in his circles. And, and actually, he had an open invitation to leave Germany um, 
before the war really got going, and to, to teach at Union Seminary in New York City, where he had studied previously. But Bonhoeffer stayed. He didn't get out of the fray. And when you read the cost of discipleship, it's not hard to understand why. In, in its most famous sentence, Bonhoeffer wrote these immortal words, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Now, this is a hard saying, and when you read the opening chapters of The Cost of Discipleship, they're inspiring, but, but they're, they're almost fanatical in their total renunciation of compromise or of a lukewarm faith. But this makes sense when one considers that, that Bonhoeffer's utter rejection of the kind of cultural Christianity he experienced was born of the fact that he had seen this kind of this compromised faith, this lukewarm faith, this cultural faith used to support the disaster that was the First World War. He had seen all his teachers, all his theological teachers and, and heroes line up lockstep behind the, uh, the German effort in the First World War, and he had seen the utter devastation that had brought on his home country and upon Europe. And then he had seen the Christianity of his homeland co-opted to Nazi ideology and accommodating itself. And so for Bonhoeffer, a Christianity that could be culturally co-opted was born of an understanding of grace, where grace was cheap, available to everyone at no cost. Cheap grace, he said, is the mortal enemy of our church. Our struggle today is for costly grace. On cheap grace, he wrote, cheap grace means grace as bargain basement goods, cut rate forgiveness, cut rate comfort, cut rate sacrament. Grace as the church's inexhaustible pantry from which it is doled out by careless hands without hesitation or limit. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace means justification of sin, but not of the sinner. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, great without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Cheap grace is the, hey, we're, we're just happy you're here, grace. We know you could be at brunch right now, so thanks for showing up. Cheap grace is, well, thanks for bringing your kids to confirmation class. It'll only be a couple of years, and then they never have to come back to church till they have kids. Cheap grace is, well, thanks for tossing a couple bucks in the collection box. The air quote, square quote, discipleship of cheap grace is, is the discipleship of low expectations and of warm bodies. And that's the exact opposite of the true discipleship, which Bonhoeffer defines as this. He says, what's discipleship? It's commitment solely to the person of Jesus Christ. And this means that true discipleship allows nothing to come between us and Christ. No other ideology, no other identity, no other relationship, no other thing. 
Because if we let anything else come between us and Jesus, we're making it an idol, a false god, which means that we're going to have to contort and twist our Christian faith to conform to it, to conform to something else other than Christ. And so Bonhoeffer, he might sound like an extremist, no other relationship, no other thing, but he had seen what a Christianity that, that tied and tried to do discipleship without commitment solely to the person of Jesus Christ had done, that had tied itself to, to culture. It had baptized and it had blessed the Third Reich and it had baptized and it had blessed a war which had left his country in utter ruins. And so discipleship means that when it comes to our commitment to Jesus, there can be no dual loyalties. We cannot accept any compromises because cheap grace isn't actually grace. True grace is costly grace because it cost God everything. But Bonhoeffer wasn't saying anything in the cost of discipleship that Jesus didn't already say in our passage. In fact, Jesus puts it in harsher and even starker terms. And so we're going to see three things in our passage this morning that will elevate our understanding and our practices of generosity. The first is where a generous heart comes from. The second is what generosity requires of us. And lastly, how we can have the power to be generous. So first, where does a generous heart come from? Second, what generosity requires of us? And lastly, how can we have the power to be generous? So first, where does a generous heart come from? Jesus says some some very disturbing things in our passage. And in fact, I would say these are amongst the hardest sayings of Jesus in in, in all the Gospels. And so say you were to go out on the street and you're going to do a a man or a woman on the street interview and you're going to say, I need you to sum up the teachings of Jesus in one word. You have one word only to describe. What was the message that Jesus brought to the world? What would your man and woman on the street say? Love, right? Love. That's the message of Jesus in a nutshell. Boil it down. And then Jesus says this here. He says, but if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's a lot of hate. That's a lot of people to hate. My mom and my dad, gotta hate you. Wife and kids, honey, I hate you. Jesus told me to say it. Uh, my, My sister, She's really nice. Gotta hate her. My own self, look in the mirror. I hate you. This is really, really, really hard. What is he saying? Now, of course, you know, I'm a preacher, and so I have some seminary training, and so it's part of my job, right, to make parts of the Bible that are difficult to understand or sound harsh or shocking to us. It's my job to make it palatable to you, my Western-educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic congregation. I I will make this easier to swallow. That Jesus can't be saying what he's saying. But with this passage especially, and passages like these, I love them because they do sound strange. They do sound shocking. And they remind me that my burden as a preacher is to not commit what one commentator called betrayal by interpretation. Sort of like, with one weird trick, I can make this not sound so harsh. Now, Jesus isn't actually saying that you have to hate in the sense of harboring animosity in your heart towards these people. But it's still hard and demanding and more difficult than we would actually want to imagine. But 
We're not going to apply a you know, lifeless, wooden literalism to what Jesus says here. Uh, the way that Jesus is using hate here is, is what one could call a you know, semiticism. So this is still the same Jesus who said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute, persecute you, love your neighbor as yourself. But when I say a semiticism, I mean this. This is an idiomatic way of talking for an Aramaic-speaking person in the first century. We have our own ways, you know, like the way we use literally is not literal. You know, this is literally the worst thing I've ever had in my life. We don't mean that's actually the worst thing I've ever This is literally the best thing I've ever seen. Like, we don't mean literally. So we can understand these idiomatic ways of using words that aren't just wooden literalism. But when Jesus is saying hate these people, it's not about harboring, harboring actual feelings of hatred for these people. It's about properly ordered loves. It's about loving Jesus first and foremost, so much so, and so much more so than anything else, that our other loves pale in comparison, so much so that we would call them hatred. That we cannot compare our, two, our loves of these two things without them being an absolute contrast. Like, how do you compare the light and heat that we get from the sun to, you know, the flashlight on your phone? Right? Those two things we both call light, but there's absolutely no comparison between the two. And even with this concept of love, we can understand that it's different. You know, I can say, oh, um, you know, I, 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 love, I love the Gophers. Wow, they won yesterday. I love, I love that team so much. But then I say, I love my kids. I love my wife. I love my family. We use the same word, but there could not be a more kind of infinite qualitative difference between those two kinds of love. And, that, and that's what Jesus is getting at here. That, that, that our love for him pales in comparison so much to our other loves that we, we, we call it hatred. And so that's the first hard saying of this passage, though. Maybe the easiest hard saying of this passage about costly grace. You can't be my disciple unless. And then the second hard saying comes in the next verse where Jesus says, so whoever does not bear his own cross and come, and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, we're so, you know, steeped in centuries of Christianity that for us, we cannot even begin to fathom the shock that this would have caused for Jesus' first hearers. They would have been utterly repulsed by this statement. The cross wasn't something to be celebrated. It was an instrument of torture and shame. Think of Jesus said, you can't be my disciple unless you, you know, submit yourself to waterboarding. We'd be disgusted to hear that. You know, the cross was, was the absolute worst thing the Romans could do to you because it wasn't just about killing you. It was about making a public example of you. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to be willing to endure that suffering and shame. You know, Jesus here, he was in this passage, Luke tells us, he's speaking to the crowd. Crowds are attracted to him. So Jesus has this big audience, and, you know, he's not a very good politician. He says, you want to be my disciple, you're going to have to do this. It'd be like a candidate getting up and saying, vote for me, I'm going to raise your taxes and lower your standard of living. You know? Vote for me, and your life isn't going to get easier. I'm going to make it worse. You're going to be worse. In four years, you'll ask yourself this question. Am I worse off than I was four years ago? Yes. But Jesus is not trying to make fans. He's trying to make followers. And that's the difference. But the last costly grace saying comes at the very end, and it's key for understanding this whole passage. And I think this is the hardest thing of all. This is where it gets too real. He says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
And other translations render this verse as, so therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Or only the man who says goodbye to all his possessions can be my disciple. And I do think if we're being honest, this is the hardest saying of all because this is where it gets too real. Because Jesus starts messing with our stuff. You know, hate my parents. I mean, if I have to, I have to, I guess, you know, and suffer for Jesus and, you know, kind of subject myself to shame. If I got to, I got to. But surrender everything I have? I have lots of stuff. I have a house. I have a car. I have a minivan. I'm not going to surrender that minivan to Jesus. That's some good cargo storage right there. I've got some nice new khakis I'm wearing, you know. Uh, uh, I've got a TV that I like to watch. Like, surrender that? That's when it gets too real. But here I am reminded of this point that we always constantly need to reminded about. The thing that Jesus talked about most in the Gospels was the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. That's number one with a bullet. But number two is money, is resources, is wealth. That's the thing Jesus talks about second most compared to the kingdom of God. And when Jesus talks about money and wealth and possessions, here's how he talks about it. Basically, he talks about it. He is warning people about its power because Jesus understood that money was the thing most likely to become an idol, most likely to take the place of God in our lives. And why does Jesus have to warn people about money and greed when it comes to wealth? I think it's because it can become an idol and we won't even realize it. You know, if someone's committing adultery, it's not like they're unaware of what's happening. Or if someone's stealing, it's not like they need to be told that they're stealing. But, but, but does anyone say, oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm greedy. I'm being greedy. No, never. You know, maybe Gordon Gecko in like a, some, you know, parody of a, of a 1980s, you know, Wall Street banker. But other than that, most of us walk around and, and, and we would never think that we're greedy. And Jesus is talking to, you know, Galilean peasants, and he's warning them about the dangers of wealth. And so think about us. We're included in that too. And it's so dangerous because it comes this idol in our lives, this substitute for God in our lives, and we don't even realize it. So Jesus, he warned people about wealth and money and about how it could become an idol, and he had one simple solution to fight greed. Generosity. Giving it away. He says, that's the answer. And so where does a generous heart come from? True generosity is born from a heart that is willing to surrender everything to Jesus. True generosity comes from a heart that is willing to surrender everything to Jesus. How much? Everything. Our relationships, our dignity, our life, our stuff. None of that comes between us and Jesus. So I think this is truly the hardest saying in the gospel. So when it comes to the cost of discipleship, Jesus is saying, it's going to cost you everything because we gain everything. You know, the last part of people to become a Christian, the last part of their lives they surrender him, their wallets, easily. You know, we can give Christ our hearts, our minds, our relationships, our bodies even, but, but we hold on to those wallets and we got a thousand and one reasons why. But costly grace, it's grace that costs you something because it costs God everything. One of my favorite stories 
uh, in my years in ministry was this. I was preaching at a youth rally this, in, in Ojai, California, and we had all the different youth groups in the valley, got our churches together for a night of praise and worship and teaching, and, uh, and, and I got to be the speaker at that. And so we have, you know, 150 junior high and high school kids there, and I was just getting started in my talk. And this was gonna be like a 10-minute talk, um, and it was a rhetorical question. So like I was not, this was not a call and response event or type of crowd. And I was actually speaking on one of the passages that Bradley read from Romans 12 about being a living sacrifice and this notion of sacrifice, giving something up to follow Jesus. And so I started with this rhetorical question almost in the first minute or two of the talk. What has it cost you? What, what have you had to sacrifice to follow Jesus? What has it cost you? And like half of the room unprompted responded to this rhetorical question with a loud and enthusiastic, nothing. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that. And, and I I don't know what happened the rest of that talk, but there was a lot of flop sweat happening and going like, oh my gosh, <laughs> what happened? Cheap grace. Oh, cheap grace. We're not so different than those teens in that room. You know, when it comes to the cost of discipleship, costly grace, true generosity, we can go, well, what has it cost me? Literally, what is the actual cost then? You know, time is a cost. What does it cost me in terms of my time? Talent is a cost. You spend that on something. What does it cost you in terms of your talent? Your, 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 your resources. What does it cost you there? And money, money is money. What does it cost you in terms of that? Right, Jesus is saying here that, that true discipleship, it requires generosity. And generosity is costly because it entails sacrifice, giving something up. And so when we think about generosity, specifically in terms of this campaign, but also holistically in terms of all the areas of our life where God calls us to be generous, you know, this is going to require for us to pull this off. It's going to require sacrifice from all of us. You know, they talk, in Las Vegas, they talk about, they kind of roll out the red carpet when, when someone shows up who's a big-time gambler. You know what they call him? A whale. So the whale gets the best treatment ever because they know that person has a lot of money and they, the house always wins. And so that person is going to blow a lot of money at that casino, so they roll out the red carpet. The challenging thing for our church, but I think ultimately the good thing is, we have no whales. We have no whales. There is no uh, person who's going to ride in on a white horse and, and write the big check, and then all of us get to sort of bask in the, in the ambient glow of someone else doing it. No, 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 no. This requires all of us to be generous, to kind of crib a uh, little saying of P.J. Fleck, Gophers coach, we, we all got to grab an oar because we're going to be rowing the boat together. No one just gets to sit back and enjoy the ride. We all got to grab an oar. And so what is sacrifice going to mean? It means giving something up. It means it's got to impact our lifestyle in some way. And what kind of car you drive, what kind of vacation you take, how much you go out to eat, the clothes you wear, the entertainment you consume, your spending habits, all that, we're, we're just putting that all on the table. Because if your discipleship costs you nothing, if you don't ever have to sacrifice anything to follow Jesus, then you're living with an understanding of grace that is cheap. It's cheap. You know, my family is worth thinking and praying about this, what God is calling us to give. We realize it's not going to be easy. We're going to have to dig deep. And I'm not saying this to brag because we need this message. I need this message as much as anyone else. And I know that I cannot lead people where I myself am not willing to go. And it's not about equal gifts. 
Because some people might be able to give them more. Of course, more, some people are able to give more than others. Some people might be able to do beyond what the top gift is on there. Some people are going to give less than the bottom, but that doesn't matter. It's not about equality of numbers. It's about equality of sacrifice. And so true generosity comes from a heart that is willing to surrender everything to Jesus and sacrifice for him. That's where true generosity comes from. But let's look next at what true generosity requires. And this comes in these two wonderful stories that Jesus tells about building a tower and a king taking an army out to war. Count the cost, Jesus says. Before you build, count the cost. And before you go out to battle, take stock of your forces, of your strength. And so from these two stories, we we learn two essential principles of generosity, that it requires intentionality and honesty. Intentionality and honesty, those are two core principles of true generosity. And because intentionality, generosity does not happen by accident. And honesty, it doesn't happen without self-assessment and self-awareness. Intentionality and honesty. The person building the tower, and, and the setting here is agricultural, basically someone who owns a vineyard, and they're thinking about building a tower on their property to sort of protect it and help them make sure that the whole operation is running well. And so if you kind of came up in the world, you know, moving on up, you would build yourself a tower eventually on your vineyard. And so this person building the tower, they got to come up with a plan. They have to think, well, do I have the money? Because if you start it and don't finish it, it's, it's embarrassing. You're a laughingstock. Do I have the money? Do I, do I have the people who know how to build this and, and can help me build it? And is now the right time? And, and where's the right place on my property? And what materials will I need? And what benefit will this tower bring? Is this really going to help my operation? Do I really have what I need right now in order to pull this off? Intentionality, honesty. The king mustering an army. Got to come up with a battle plan. Got to station the troops. Got to count the troops. Got to have the right officers and generals. They've got to ask, do we have the weapons, the supplies, the materials? I mean, you know, having people and weapons, that's only half the battle. The army runs on its stomach, so we've got to be able to feed these people. And ultimately, he's got to ask, well, they've got 20,000, I've got 10,000. Can I win? Do we have what it takes to be successful? And so for elevating our, our, our generosity, I want us to be intentional, and I want us all to be honest, too. Now, what does that look like for us? Let me introduce you to a little helpful device, the four Ps you know, preachers, we love alliteration, so this is going to help. And so as you think about, well, how can I be intentional and honest about my generosity, my practices, these are always going to serve you well. First, pray about it. And we've got the Elevate Prayer Guide out there, and so please, 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 everyone, be using that each and every day. Seek the Lord. Don't just pick some random number out of the air or off of that card or just say, I guess I can do that. Seek God's guidance, really, really, really. And ask God some uncomfortable questions. God, I feel like I should do this, but would you have me do more? And the second P, so we got prayer, then we got proportionality. Take a holistic look at your life. Consider your income, consider your net worth, consider the assets at your disposal. You know, Matt Anderson's got that Michael Jordan rookie card. You know, Matt's gonna sell that. He's gonna get all $5.50 that'll come from that to give toward this campaign. But your Honus Wagner baseball card, that can count. Your Pokemon cards, like my children, they're gonna have to give half of their Pokemon cards for this campaign just so we can get rid of them. We're being proportional. That's my kids' wealth. They measure in Pokemon cards. It's sad. But we're going to say, what, what, what do I have? And then we're going to think, well, God, not in terms of a dollar amount, but Lord, given everything that you've given me, how can I proportionally support this in a way that's sacrifice, sacrificial? 
Because honestly, some of the most generous pledges are going to have the lowest dollar amount. And that's what's so beautiful about generosity is it's available to everyone. The best example of sacrificial generosity that Jesus gives in the New Testament, it's a story about someone dumping a whole big pile of money in somewhere, thinking they're generous. And the widow gives what? Two mites, two pennies. She's the shining example Jesus gives of generosity. It's not about equality of gift. It's about equality of sacrifice. You know, in this principle, it's so hard for us to wrap our minds around to think that someone who gives a little bit of money can be more generous than the person who gives a lot. But literally the largest gift I've ever seen someone give to something was, was at a church where someone gave $25,000 to redo our children's ministry space. And this was treated like the most generous gift anyone had ever given. And I don't blame the person because that's all they were asked to give. But this person was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Hundreds of millions of dollars. But they were just being just as generous in that instance as the person who was buying the wreath from the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scout cookies, or, or when the kid comes by for the baseball team and says, will you buy this coupon book and gives them 20 or $40. That's just as generous, yet we don't celebrate it as such because it's hard to think proportionally. But we're challenged to do that, being intentional and honest. So we pray, we think proportionally, we turn it in, and we have to ask ourselves, is this pleasing to God? Do I think doing this puts a smile on God's face? And lastly, being totally honest, we say, do I have peace? peace that comes with this gift, peace that comes from knowing that I'm doing, we're doing exactly what God would have us to do in order to support this. And so true generosity, it's sacrificial, it's intentional, it's honest. But the last question is this, how do we get the power to do this? Because this is hard, this is uncomfortable. I hate talking about this kind of stuff up here. Like, I'm very uncomfortable talking about generosity. You know, why is that? I have to ask why. And I think for me, it's because, uh, you know, when it comes to my money and my resources, if I see something I want, like a new commentary, a new book, I have no problem. You know how many books I have on my shelf in my office that I have not read? The vast majority of them. What's up? Why, why would someone do that? But it's about my identity, right? I, I'm, I'm a learned person. I'm a learned pastor. Look at my books. There's evidence of it. I have no problem with that because it feeds my ego and my identity. But being generous is work because my focus is still so much on what this is costing me and not on Jesus and what I cost him. You know, think about Jesus. One of our theme passages is this passage from Philippians, the Christ hymn, about who Jesus being in equality, he had equality with God, did not count it as something to be grasped, but emptied himself. He had the riches of heaven. He had an unbroken relationship with the Father, bound together by the Holy Spirit. Jesus had everything, and he gave it all up. Why? So that he could have the one thing that he didn't have in heaven, and that's us. He gave it all up. He became poor to make us rich. He took on death to give us life. He bore our shame to, to give us honor. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so when we really understand that, what Jesus did, we will understand that grace isn't cheap. Worse than that, it's free for us because it costs Jesus everything. And so when we think of a true understanding of grace, here's a lovely Sunday school acronym for grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's costly grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. And so when we truly understand the cost of grace, you know, we won't begrudgingly give to God like we're paying a bill or our taxes. We will be overcome with joy 
and want to give to things that further his cause. And so since I gave Dietrich Bonhoeffer the first word, I think it's only fitting that I give him the last. And it's this wonderful benediction that he speaks in this passage. And and he, and he says, blessed are they who already stand at the end of the path on on which we wish to embark and perceive with amazement what really seems inconceivable, that grace is costly precisely because it is pure grace, because it is God's grace in Jesus Christ. Blessed are they who by simply following Jesus Christ are overcome by this grace so that with humble spirit they may praise the grace of Christ, which alone is effective. Blessed are they who in the knowledge of such grace can live in the world without losing themselves in it. In following Christ, their heavenly home has become so certain that they are truly free for life in this world. And might I add, free for a life, free for life, where because they understand the cost of grace, are free to be truly generous. Because a grace that costs nothing from us, it demands everything of us. Everything of us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please pray with me.